somewhere in Mark, Mark 2, 16 through 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thanks yet again for our time together this morning. I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that as sinners, we would recognize a need for a physician in the ministration of your word. I pray that we wouldn't be wise in our own eyes, but in in your wisdom, you've given us your word to follow. I pray that uh, Dan would, his work would uh, show forth while he's preaching to us this morning and that we'd be receptive of it. Amen. All right, we turn to the Gospel of Mark. The life and ministry of Christ. There's a church in Philadelphia, <clears throat> well-known church, probably heard of it, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And they've had uh, a whole string of really well-known pastors that have ministered there from 16 or from 1927 to 1960. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was their pastor. And he had at one point some young men interested in ministry who were gathered together, and he asked them this question. He said, what would Philadelphia look like if Satan took full control of the city? I'm sure they sat there and like everyone tried to figure out, okay, what's the preacher thinking right now? What can we answer? They offered some, some answers. Eventually Barnhouse gave his own answer. He said, If Satan took over Philadelphia, all the unseemly bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing, children would say, yes sir, and no ma'am, and the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ would not be preached. I don't know if that's what the city of Philadelphia would look like, or the city of Pittsburgh, or any other, but the point is well taken. The subtle deception of Satan, the subtle deception of our own hearts, that a religion would come that would offer a solution to all kinds of your problems, that would would meet many of your felt needs, but would miss your deepest need would not offer a solution to your greatest problem, and that is the forgiveness of your sins. That is the salvation that your soul needs. I think we could expect, therefore, that the most serious threat to the one true gospel may be something that is also called gospel. Something that masquerades as gospel is counterfeit, empty, maybe legalism, maybe self-help, The most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ, a different Lord, but still call him Jesus. I think when you hear that, we can immediately think, well, yeah, we can picture those churches, those people, that would never be us. And by our confession, I hope not. And yet, it is the struggle, just like it's the struggle of everyone in our own hearts, that we lay down our own pride, we lay down our own 
uh, worth, our own efforts, our other idols, and we look to Jesus Christ and him alone. Each morning when we rise, we remind ourselves that we are not the Lord of our lives, that our worth is not in what we have accomplished and what we have done, and it will continue not to be in that, but it will be in Jesus Christ and him alone. In Mark, we've seen that Jesus has come and he's proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and the call is to repent and believe. And in that, we see his authority through his actions. We see his authority in his words as he casts out demons, showing indeed his power over those who would oppress, over those who would oppose him. And he overcomes that darkness. We see his authority in the word that he teaches. We see his power and authority in the healings that he accomplishes. And all these things, he is confirming what is the question of Mark. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. What has he come to do to bring his kingdom? We may know it as we repent and believe. And what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? So we looked last week, not last week, last time we were in Mark, Jesus comes and we saw these two episodes of him healing and he shows his authority, his power over the physical nature of man. But in doing that, he goes to the deeper need. He, he reaches deeper. And so you have the leper who comes to Jesus and asks to be cleansed. And again, not asked to be healed, but asked to be cleansed. As that leper, he, he is he's banished from the rest of the community. He is unclean. He is set outside. He is set apart, uh, away from everyone. He has no place. He has no worth, no approach in coming into any of his former community. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Father, well, we call, ask Jesus, Make me clean. Will you make me clean? And remember, Christ does something astonishing in that moment. He touches this man. This filthy, leprous man, this outcast, Jesus reaches and touches this one in love and compassion and care. And we see that it's not Jesus who is corrupted by that touch, but the holiness of Jesus, the power of Jesus Christ sweeps over this man and he is made clean. And we see our deep need and we see that Christ has come to meet that need through the cleansing of the leper. And then we come to the paralytic. You remember the scene of that story as the man is, is lowered through the roof of this home as Jesus teaches in a crowded room. The man is lowered through and again, <clears throat> he has come for healing, but Jesus sees through the deeper need, through the deeper need and he pronounces, your sins are forgiven. And we borrowed a comment from a commentator that we'll, we'll continue to use. From that moment on, the shadow of the cross falls over Jesus' life and ministry. Both as he offers forgiveness of sins, he is making a declaration in front of the religious leaders of that day that he is not just some prophet, he is the Son of God. If he has come to offer forgiveness of sins... And also the shadow of the cross, as we know what it means to be forgiven of our sins, someone must lay down their life. Someone is going to be punished for those sins. And Jesus Christ begins his journey towards the cross in those moments. 
And he asked that question as the leaders are upset that he would forgive them the sins. He goes, well, what's easier for me to say? Rise up and walk or your, your sins are forgiven? And you remember it in one way, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because as that paralytic man lies there, no one can judge in the moment whether his sins are actually forgiven or not. Whereas if Jesus were to say, get up and walk, then someone could judge right away. Is this guy going to get up or not? Following that comment then, Jesus does heal him and he gets up and walks. And what it teaches us is secures us that just assuredly as Jesus had the authority to heal this man that he would rise and walk, he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sins. And this man's sins have been forgiven by the declaration of Jesus Christ. And in that episode, as the shadow of the cross sort of falls over the ministry of Jesus, it's the first of, of five episodes where Jesus is going to be in conflict with really the religious leaders of the day. They're not necessarily chronological, but it's Mark in his just jumping from one event to another as he puts these together to. to back them up back to back to back to see the ministry of the life of Jesus to see what his kingdom authority and power are all about to see now as Jesus runs in conflict what we can learn from these episodes so we're going to look at the next two this morning from Matthew 2 verse 13 down through verse 22 verse 13 is Mark is known to do at this point we won't belabor the point but mark just doesn't paint much of a scene he just jumps right into it jesus is beside the sea crowds coming to him verse 14 as he passed by he saw levi the son of alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and followed him levi this is the disciple we know as matthew author of the, the gospel that comes right before this. Jesus again calls his disciples. He takes the initiative. Mark giving very little detail. It's more than likely Matthew and Jesus had had some interaction before that. He had at least heard Jesus teaching or seen the crowds following him. Or Jesus had had some sort of interaction there. But here all is recorded is that once again Jesus takes the initiative in calling his disciples. Unlike the other rabbis whose students select them and follow them, with Jesus, he calls his disciples. In the same thing that the fishermen did, the same response they had, Matthew has. And that's the proper response, to submit to the authority of Christ, to be obedient to his call, and to join in his mission. And Matthew does that, but <clears throat> Matthew, he, he's a tax collector. It's worth thinking about this for a minute. This fits well with some of Adam's points from last week, looking at the lineage, lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew is a tax collector. He's set up there in Capernaum. That would be an important city, a, a port city. Lots of fishing, lots of trade, lots of imports, a good place to collect taxes. And so it's not an office he's in, but he has some sort of booth or shanty set up. And there as the merchants come and go, the fishermen come and go, maybe he's interacted with James and John in this way, as they come and go and he charges the taxes and collects the taxes. 
To be a tax collector, maybe you've heard this, but it's a despised position. It's Rome reaching out to find Jewish people who will basically be traitors to their own people and serve as a tax collector among their own people. <clears throat> the way it happens would be, you know, he looks at his region. So we'll just use you guys' example. And I'd put in a bid to Rome. I think I can collect $15,000 in taxes. So Rome gets all of these bids, and then Rome selects, okay, I like that bid, you have the job. So Matthew lands the job. Now he starts collecting taxes, and once he reaches his quota, everything else beyond that goes in his pocket. So not only is he representing Rome, who's suppressing the people, he's also taken on, I mean, no one likes a tax man, he's taken on this job, and it was no different then than it is now. Taxes are confusing. And no one knew how they worked except Matthew. So the guy who's collecting the taxes gets to set the taxes and gets to explain how taxes work. And needless to say, it was a corrupt group of people who normally were in that position, that were normally marked by greed, dishonesty, as they made themselves rich off the back of their neighbors. <clears throat> so just as sort of astounding and shocking as it was in the earlier story to see Jesus reach out and touch a leper, it's probably equally or more shocking that Jesus is going to call to be his follower a tax collector. This sinner, this unworthy person. Where we look and we see, man, that's like the worst decisions. He is completely unworthy Jesus looks and he sees one more trophy of grace, one more life that he can transform by his grace. And I think the point is, before we move on, is not to judge Matthew as much to realize we're all in that position when Christ calls us. And it's shocking that Christ would call any of us to be his child. We are all unworthy. There's nothing that sits there and thinks, well, that person's merited it. They're a good person. They made good decisions. They have a nice job. That person, no, we are all sinners. We all need to be rescued and transformed by radical grace. And so in this story, it's not look at Matthew. He's the bad guy. It's, that's all of us. Jesus calls Matthew follow him. I do think just as another application, again, as Adam pointed out in his sermon last week, <clears throat> some of us have a past that is uglier than others. And yet, the Lord is gracious, and he can use whoever, however he wants, in a mighty way. We praise the Lord for that. So, he calls Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew seems to be excited about this. He has a little gathering. Verse 15. <clears throat> As he reclined at table in his house. Here he is. It's not just, I mean, they're, he's reclining. They're into some time of fellowship, into some festivities. He's reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, ask that question. But you notice the, the, the word there again. There's those who followed Jesus, and there's those who just kind of stand off and are interested and observe what's going on. You have the disciples, you have the tax collectors, you have these folks. They have followed Jesus, and here they are at his table. And then you have those just observing it and judging. I think, again, churches are full of these groups of people, those who are following Jesus, and those that are just a little interested, hearing about it, listening, but standing far off. Jesus has called them. They are following. Verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, so that's the elite of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and with sinners? Well, first of all, if Jesus isn't eating with sinners... He's eating every meal alone, right? So the sinners, those, those who want to follow the, the pharisaical way. <clears throat> it's worth talking about the Pharisees just for a moment. As we think of the religious leaders of that day. Pharisees get a bad rap, and rightfully so. But in many ways, they are the best of the religious sects of Judaism. They are descendants of the faithful that you read about in Psalms who protect the, the worship life of the people of God. They are the folks who are committed to the Torah, to the renewal of, uh, of Israel, to the worship of God. Unlike the Sadducees, they believe they, they believed in the resurrection. They believe in some of those things. Unlike the, the zealots, they're not looking for political overthrow, that the Messianic age is, is political. So in many ways, they're going to be about the closest that there is to Jesus as far as the religious teaching goes. And yet, almost always when they're brought up in the Gospels, they're the antagonists. And it's because they're so close and yet they're so far. They should be the ones to get it and they don't. And what normally stands, that is the issue, what stands as the issue here and we'll see it pop up through Mark, is this idea of tradition. That the Pharisees have the law, they take it very seriously. All these do's and these don'ts. They, they take the law seriously. But the way that they try to keep the law is, okay, here's the law in order to keep that, let's set up a hedge around it, you could think, of, of traditions. And as long as we have this hedge of, of tradition and certain way, we'll make sure that we'll never kind of get over here and be able to break this law. And so if each of these laws, they kind of add new sort of traditions to them. And eventually those traditions build up and they become just as important as the law itself. And now they just added a whole bunch of commandments to the law. You see this when Jesus was first teaching. They're blown away with his authority. Because he, he taught as one with authority, not the rabbis who, who just relied really on the tradition that had been passed down. But here the Pharisees have built up all of these traditions. And it's their way of how do I keep the law? How am I going to be righteous? Well, I can't break that law and not break that law. I'll make five more laws around it. And by the time we get down the road, now each of these laws is as important as the other. And in, in making all of these traditions, they have missed the entire intent of the law. And so when Jesus is running into them, it's not a matter of Jesus hates the law and they love the law. 
No, Jesus came to fulfill the law. It's a matter of they they see the law operating wrong, that they're going to keep the law by more law. They're going to be right with God by making more and more and more and more laws, and they're going to hold everyone to that standard. Jesus points through it all. You're missing the entire intent of the law. And so they have a tradition. You don't sit down and eat a meal with anyone besides other Pharisees. Why? Because you don't know where those people got that food. And, and then if it's the wrong food, and if that food wasn't tied, then there's a whole bunch of things. So in order to make sure we don't break this law, let's make all these new laws. By the end, I'm not even coming into your house. That's my law. And so they see Jesus acting in this way. And Jesus' answer to them is really simple and brilliant and pretty devastating. He said to them, to those who are well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. He's telling them people they need to recognize that they are sinners. They need to recognize that they have a need of him, not trying to gain a righteousness just by adding more law, but looking outside of themselves. I think he makes three points here. One, in this answer, he's demonstrating once again just the radical nature of grace. The unmerited and gracious forgiveness of sins that welcomes any of us to the table. Coming to the table, it's not a merited position. It's not an accomplishment. When we have the Lord's table, we together rehearse that again and again. No one has merited to come here. No one has lived in such a way that they're worthy of this table. We have been called. He has taken the initiative. And it is by grace that we come. And in coming to the table, we are declaring and resting in His work and His grace, not our own. He calls to the table that first he comes and then he brings reform. You know, sometimes we can get those mixed up in our lives, right? That someone needs to, to clean themselves up and then we'll give them the gospel. That this lifestyle, this choice, whatever it is, is what they need first is the gospel. And then God will transform from there. That's why no matter how unpopular it is, and it's becoming more and more unpopular, the the idea of of loving the sinner and hating the sin, the idea of loving and inviting and being warm and friendly to, to those who are making seriously sinful choices in their lives is appropriate without us having to put our stamp of approval that that whatever choice they make is pleasing to the Lord. We need to hold our ground in that, of loving, of being warm and loving and reaching out and realize what people need is the gospel without feeling that tug that we also at the same time have to either one, change them before they come to the gospel or approve everything they're doing so the gospel feels less offensive. I won't take the time to read it, but Romans 9, 30 to 33, if you're taking notes, you can jot that down of how God works in those ways. 
Secondly, in his comment, he is rebuking them for misdirected zeal. Their concern for moral purity is commendable, but the way that they are seeking that purity is to avoid sin-sick people, not by seeking God, not by following God. Again, they've created more law. If we can just keep six laws instead of the one, then we'll have kept the one. And he's saying, no, you need to follow me. And he's exposing their false holiness. Again, holiness for none of us shows itself by standing and criticizing others. Holiness shows itself as we go in love and service to others. It's important, I, th- I feel like these, this story's thrown a lot, around a lot as a way to kind of lower the standard of holiness, that as long as you're doing something in the name of love, you can go anywhere, do anything. That's not what's taking place here. I think if you extend the example of the doctor, when the doctor goes into the sick, he scrubs up, doesn't he? He gets, make sure he's all clean and, and scrubbed up, and he's got on his gown, he goes in, because he's looking to be helpful to the sick. He's not looking to go in and just catch whatever they have and be fine with it. It's not a matter of just, you know, just run with whoever you want, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. The point is that the kingdom living, the light goes to the darkness. It shines brightly in there. Holiness doesn't stand far off criticizing, but it it cares for those who are in need. It goes to hard places because it doesn't just create more law, it follows Jesus. Jesus goes to those who are in need. The second episode we come to then is a question of fasting. Verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, again, maybe it's Pharisees that are asking, it's hard to tell if these are honest questions or set-up questions, but they come to him, say to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. <clears throat> so the Pharisees typically fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. We saw that in church history. If you look at Luke 18, verses 10 through 12, there the Pharisee is saying that as he beats his chest and prays, that he fasts twice a week. And that seems to be the truth. John's... Uh, disciples who are following John well I don't know exactly why they're fasting maybe because John was imprisoned and his life was in jeopardy and so they're fasting for that maybe just something to do with with how they um, how they fasted but it was different than what the Pharisees were doing but both groups were fasting when you read about fasting again Adam talked on some of this back in Esther when you read about fasting, there's really just one fast that was mandated in the law, and it was the fast around the Day of Atonement. You see that in Leviticus 16. Through the life of the church, as they started memorializing terrible situations, or they had moments of repentance and penitence, there were other fasts that were added onto it. They commemorated the destruction of the temple or the fall of Jerusalem. By the time you get to Zechariah 8, which is sort of where Jesus is not quoting from, but takes some of his answer from, there seems to be multiple, at least four fasts that kind of happened all the time. Three added on to the one 
around the Day of Atonement. Just listen to a few of these verses from Zechariah 8. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Fear not. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So what he's saying is, Through discipline I brought hard times upon you, and you've remembered those times through seasons of fasting. And that was fine. Even if it's not in the law, it's not wrong that they did that, they, did that, that they were participating in it. And in that fasting, they're hoping for prosperity and for peace and, and the presence of the Lord. And he's telling them when that comes, though, the fasting will be replaced with feasting and with joy. And so he moves on here in verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so he is saying this prophecy, I have arrived. The peace, the prosperity, the presence of God, it is here. The time for fasting is no more. And especially to prove your holiness and to add fast upon fast upon fast. Again, a whole other hedge, a whole bunch more laws that the Pharisees were adding. Jesus is saying it's inappropriate now because the bridegroom is here. You know, I've, I've done several weddings. They're always a joy to do. <clears throat> and I can tell you, I've never started a wedding by saying, you know, we gather here today in deep sorrow and, you know, real sadness as the Johnsons add a, a new son-in-law to their family. <clears throat> no, that's inappropriate. Although I will say sometimes the dad is the walks the his daughter down the aisle looks like that, <laughs> that this is a day of fasting and mourning for him, but it would be inappropriate. It's a time of feasting and joy. You see that with Jesus in his first miracle, Cana of Galilee, that he comes and it's not just like a, you know, a wedding couple hours. It's like a week-long festival that they would have here and the, the festivities would be in the house and flow out in the street. And there, was, there was food and there was drink and there was all kinds of merriment. And Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into wine for this festivity and the point to the joy and the festivity of the moment. <clears throat> He's saying more than this too, though, because when you look at the Old Testament, the bride, the groom in the Old Testament is never the Messiah. The groom in the Old Testament is God. You see that in Isaiah, you see it in Ezekiel, you see it pictured in Hosea. It is God who is the groom. And so once again, Jesus is making a declaration when he calls himself the groom coming for the bride, that he is indeed the son of God. Jesus is here. It's a time for joy. It's a time for feasting. And so he continues on. Verse 20, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Again, foreshadowing the cross of Jesus Christ, foreshadowing his ascension. I don't know how much of that sunk into the people right there, but that's what we see. It. There will be a time when Christ is gone. Fasting will be appropriate again, but right now is not the time. It would be like trying to 
start a diet the day before Christmas or something. It's not the time. <clears throat> then he adds these two illustrations to drive home his point. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. I think they're teaching the same thing. If you have an old shirt, you get a hole in the elbow, you don't get brand new fabric and make that patch, because as soon as you wash and dry it, that new fabric's going to shrink up, and it'll tear right out of the sleeve. Or with the wine, they would keep the wines in like goat skin type of containers. And the wine, as you put it in there, starts to expand. It emits gases and ferments and it, it expands. And so that those wineskins expand with it. But if you put it into an old skin that's already as stretched out as it can be, and you put new wine in there and fill it up, when it expands, the skins can't expand with it, it bursts. It's a big mess. What Jesus is saying, I think, is that the old structures that you people, these Pharisees, are working off of, the, the way that they're trying to be right with God, when Jesus comes, he, he just can't be a little add-on to what you're already doing. Your old structures can't contain the truth of Jesus Christ. It's not, I depend on all of this stuff, and let me just add a little Jesus to it. He is saying, when... When he comes to something new, it's something radical, it's all, of, it's all Christ. Your dependence is all on Jesus. He's not just an add-on to whatever it else it is that you are doing. It's not you've been really good and you add a little Jesus to it, or you have this set up and you add Christ here a little bit. No, it is all Christ, an empty vessel receiving all of Christ through faith. Again, pointing back to Matthew, like we're all that one who it's amazing that God would even reach out to us and call us to be his followers. It's all of grace. He's an empty vessel that God is filling. And these Pharisees, it's the same for them. They need to realize they are the sinners, not the righteous. Christ has come to, to make well the sinner, not the righteous. And it's not just by adding a little Jesus. It's by emptying our hands of everything else and resting wholly and fully upon Jesus Christ. And in those illustrations, he's driving that point home. Two applications and then we'll be done. <clears throat> First, just about fasting. You know, fasting has been part of the life of the church. It's really only in more recent times that fasting has sort of not been a regular part of church life. <clears throat> when the bridegroom has been taken away, Jesus is, is not with us right now. We await his return. Of course, he's given us a spirit. He's given us the helper. We still await the return of Christ to finally set up his kingdom. I think there are still appropriate times for us to fast. Again, Adam hit some of this as we went through Esther. The time, I mean, fasting is never about gaining merit, right? We recognize that. It's never about publicly showing off that, hey, I'm fasting, you know, so that you're always talking about, oh, that pizza sounds so good, but I can't, I'm fasting. <clears throat> no, it, it's, 
a, a time of repentance, renewal, a time of, of reorienting our hearts and our minds and resting on our God, seeking his face for something. You know, if you've ever fasted, you quickly realize how food gets you through the day. I don't just mean by nourishment. It's just, it kind of like sets up and organizes your day that, all right, I'm working because I know lunch is coming. Okay, I got lunch. That's good. Okay, I can get coffee and a little snack here. And okay, now I got dinner. And when you remove that from the equation, sort of what helps get you through the day and organizes one thing to the next is taken away. And that's when you replace that with extra time of thoughtfulness in the word, meditation and prayerfulness, and let it reorder in your heart and your mind what really gets you through the day, what you really are relying on, what gives you that sustenance that you need. So let me encourage you in that. If you don't, if you do, th think about fasting. If that would be something the Lord would have you do in part of your Christian life and walk. The second application is just the exact one he gave us. That <clears throat> when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's not business as usual, but just a little bit of Jesus now. It is... I leave everything and I follow after him. I rest in no merit of my own, but I rest completely in his accomplishments. It's not I hold on to some of this law and some of this law, and that's really what protects me, but no, an empty vessel receiving Christ by faith. That we, we have to be sensitive to the other idols that we treasure, that we hold up, that we put value in, that we put our worth in. Realize that our worth comes in Christ and him alone. Realize that indeed he is worthy. And that's always our hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, the message of Christ. Lord, help us to remember as we look around that we're not wholly worthy people who sometimes observe people who aren't. Lord, we're all sinners in need of being saved. We thank you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you that it is Christ and him alone that saves, and I pray that that's where our hope will rest. That is where our worth will <clears throat> That's where our boast will be and we'll find our worth is in Jesus Christ and him alone. I'll give you just a moment of thoughtfulness there. Your seats, the worship team will lead us in response.